Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Eric Darnell Pritchard. Born and raised in Queens, New York, Dr. Pritchard is an assistant professor of English at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. He writes and teaches about literacy, rhetoric, and their intersections with fashion, beauty, popular culture, identity, and power. He is a creator and editor of Glamortunist.com, a fashion editorial blog focused on fashion, beauty, and pop culture. He is also editor of Sartorial Politics, Intersectionality, and Queer Worldmaking, a special issue of QED, a journal, and GLBTQ world making. His article for colored kids who committed suicide are outrageous and enough. Queer youth of color bullying and the discursive limits of identity and safety in Harvard Educational Review won the 2014 Conference on College Composition and Communication Lavender Rhetoric Award for Excellence in Queer Scholarship. He is author of the award-winning Fashioning Lives, Black Queers and the Politics of Literacy. Fashioning Lives was completed with the support of a Scholar-in-Residence Fellowship from the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture and the National Endowment of the Humanities. He's currently at work on two new projects, including a biography of 1980s fashion superstar, Patrick Kelly. Eric, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you today? I'm doing great. Um, thanks so much for having me, Michelle. I'm so well, I'm you, grateful to be here. <laughs> well, you know, I remember the first time I saw you. It was in Detroit at Fire and Ink. You're walking with Linda Villarosa, her mother, Clara, and Dr. Gloria Joseph. And you had this magnificent smile, which I still love. And you had on the most fabulous jewelry. And I'm a jewelry geek. So, of course, I was like, wow, who is that? (laughs) (laughs) Who is that? (laughs) You know, yeah, those are phenomenal women. But, wow, look at that, you know. And I, you know, I was just sort of drawn to you. We had moments of, of chatting. And I follow you and some of the things that you do. And reading just from the beginning of Fashioning Lives, I was like, wow, there are so many things that I can relate to that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So, like you, I was that kid who liked to read. I mean, it was like I said, immediately, my mother worked midnight, but she, from the beginning, 
talked about books. My mother's always had a book in her pocket, and often I still have that. And what was different was like you talked to, I wished I had been like you, but I know that when I got to first grade, they couldn't believe that I could read. Mm-hmm. And you know, because I went to a Catholic school and the nuns had, which, which ties into this narrative of what black people could or could not do. Mm-hmm. And they could not believe that I could read. And it wasn't until the second grade, te- I mean, the teacher brought out all these first grade books and I knocked them out the park. When the second grade teacher went and bought a book that she figured I couldn't read and I read it, then they believed I could. But rather than the second grade teacher advocated for me to go into the second grade, but they kept me in the first grade. And when I was reading about you saying how you could memorize things and you could tell us, I'm going like, wow. I mean, if I had had a superhero power, that would have been it because it was like <laughs> I couldn't read books fast enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. So, so, go, so go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, um, yeah, no, I t- totally, it's like, uh, you know, you're, I, I think I became kind of as, as you describe yourself, you know, um, as time go on. I mean, I talk about that a little bit, like, in, in the preface as well, that, you know, you know, once, you know, I sort of, you know, acquired, um, I guess, you know, the sort of, you know, literacy in this sort of traditional sense, you know, I would just, like, you know, gobble books up, I mean, for, for holidays, for Christmas, um, for anything, on um, birthdays, you know, that was it. No one ever had to ask my mom what to get me because mm-hmm. they knew what what I wanted, um, which was always, you know, going to be books. Uh, and um, to the point where, you know, I – was considered kind of like the weird kid, right, because I never mm-hmm. wanted, <laughs> you know, any of the things that other kids wanted. And some of that is in terms of gender, traditionally, like, sort of masculine ideas of, like, what does a, what does a little black boy want for his birthday, right, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, um, a kind of uh, uh, interesting, you know, and uh, sort of problematic assumption in itself, but also just in general that, you know, I would only want toys. I would only want, um, you know, uh just things that people think kids want. And so, uh, you know, I sort of share your experience in terms of being somebody who was just a, like, voracious, you know, just, like, you know, reader. Um, it, it brought me so much comfort and so much joy. And, um, you know, the characters and books and the authors of those books, they, you know, they were my community. They were my family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I, and I thought that that was really special that your mother recognizing, I mean, yeah, you could have got through, I mean, you know, but the fact that she said, no, you know, she wanted you to, to experience the full part because um, being able to hear and process it is the same as being able to read. And when you talk about literacy, it doesn't always have to come from just being able to read that book, but to recognize that she wanted you to have that full experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, how special is that? You know, did you yeah. um, did you ever have a moment where you went back and said, you know, you know, Mom, I wasn't too happy about being held back, but thank you. Yes, <laughs> yes, we, I, and I, I actually see us. I see the moment. Um, uh, there was a time um, when I was in high school. Um, it was maybe about a year before I graduated from high school, and my mother and I had this sort of, uh, you know, tradition where we would, like, I'd get out of school, and then I'd take the train over to Roosevelt Avenue in Queens, and we'd take the bus home together. She worked at the post office. And um, on this 
particular day, um, I can't remember all the context um, for how we got to the point, but I remember us talking. I think we might have been talking about um, uh, a cousin who was having some problems, um, like, in school. And my mother said, you know, that's why when, you know, when you were, like, you know, having the problems you were having in school, you know, I, like, you know, I held them accountable and I held you back. And uh, Mm -hmm. she kind of, like, gave me this look of just, like, you know, defiance. And I just wanted her to know, like, you know, you don't have to, like, it doesn't have to be a moment of defiance. And I said to her, I was like, no, I'm, gra- I'm glad that you did. It was the best thing, you know, that my mother ever did for me. And I did. As I think a lot of children who get held back in school, um, you know, um, like experience this sort of like shame, you know, of just kind of mm-hmm. like, not, like not feeling like you're up to, to, to par and, you know, like you're a year older. I was always a year older than all my friends. And that became cool once I got to college because I was 21 before everyone else. <laughs> but, oh, you know, um, but growing up, um, I, you know, it was always, it was really, really hard for me. But by the time I got to, I think, high school, maybe eighth or ninth grade, you know, I really did kind of set that aside because, you know, the thing that I thought, you know, was just such a, you know, a shameful moment, not being able to read, getting left back and things like that, you know, actually was the thing that allowed me to kind of find my footing, you know, um, Mm -hmm. and to um, have the time that I needed to sort of synthesize all the things I knew about the world, all the things I was literate about you know, about the world um, and kind of connect, you know, as Paolo Freire, the, the educational activist, says, the, the reading the word in the world. You know, that is what mm-hmm. literacy, what literacy mm-hmm. is. And so I knew, you know, like how to make sense of things around me. I think I was always a smart child, but if my mother didn't make the intervention that she made, you know, um, uh, I would never have been able to pull all of those things together. And I have to say, too, uh, you know, for me, I I love my mother for lots of reasons, but, you know, I'm really <laughs> just just think about, um, you know, I would want people to pause and just think about the fact that this is, a, a, you know, my, my mother is a black woman. Um, I, like, she got, dropped out of school in 10th grade. She worked at the post office. She had three children. Um, and she's, like, advocating for her child in a predominantly white school, in a predominantly white neighborhood in New York City, in Queens, like, in the 80s. And, you know, I talk a little bit in the book about some of the ways in which they, you know, respond to prob- like, you know, to her in a way that was wrong, right, and mm-hmm. unjust and mm-hmm. discriminatory. Uh, and, you know, she held her ground, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, so I'm always going to be, you know, grateful to my mom uh, for that. But I think, you know, she's part of a longer part of my story of black women, of black feminists in particular, um, mm-hmm. you know, who really um, just – are, have been such, like, an inspiration to me. And, you know, um, as Audre Lorde says, help me to be who I am and do what I came to do. You know, I think that, you know, I related to your mother because that's what I thought. I often tell people that there were sometimes I didn't realize that the reason we didn't have television was maybe, you know, something that happened to the television. She couldn't get it. We couldn't get it fixed. Or maybe there was some kind of other issue. But every Saturday we went to the library and the other thing that I related to you was like, I went to, I'm, I lived in Detroit. I went to Chaos, and right down the street from Chaos Technical High School was what they call the Cultural Center, where the main library was. There was the Detroit Institute of Art. And when I wasn't being challenged, and I think that I wasn't being challenged enough in school because maybe they thought I couldn't, 
I would spend my advanced studies, as I called them, when I wasn't <laughs> in class. I'd be either at the library or at the DIA. And there was something that, that, that came across when you were talking about literacy and which made me think about it. Because although I saw these books from a very young age showing me that there was this huge world outside of my existence and that I always believed that I could do anything if I could find a book and read it and learn mm -hmm. about it, but I also often didn't see me, that little black girl, mm -hmm. you know, who wasn't rich or and later on who was coming out as being queer. And you sort of talk about that and literacy and how it, I guess in some ways it's also a pathway, but also in some ways because we erased a blockade. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and I feel like there's to some degree, um, you know, some of the sort of representational issues, you know, are, I mean, people are working actively, you know, to, you know, address them, um, in, at least in children's um, literature and young adult literature, which is really like the, the, one of the things keeping the publishing industry going, you know, right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, but I do, you know, speak, you know, so I'm speaking as somebody, you know, as a black queer person um, and as a black feminist, you know, I think that there's still so much more space and so much more room um, for there to be more books, right, um, children's books, um, young adult books that really do re reflect, you know, the um, full range of experiences of, you know, uh, of life um, and of children's and young, and, and young people's lives. You know, if I had been able to read a book about a black queer teenager, you know, when I was mm -hmm. a black queer teenager, I mean, that would have been like, wow. Um, you know, I was lucky. I mean, there were people who did, you know, write about their childhood um, in their in their writing who were black queer people, like James Baldwin or Audre Lorde, right? Um, who and and there was that kind of resonance that of their lives with mine, and so it was kind of like I felt a kind of kinship with them that I couldn't quite articulate. And so I did get it, but I didn't get it from, you know, the sort of very visible sign posted, here are books for children and young people. And mm -hmm. so that's a really important, you know, um, thing for me that, you know, I hope to address maybe at some point by doing, contributing my own, you know, ch children's and young adult lit, um, is that people be able to have – um, you know, not not have to work so hard as I did or as you did, mm -hmm. right? To kind of mm -hmm. find ourselves, um, you know, um, uh, represented in literary text or on television or, you know, any of those things. And it is, I think, considerably better. But I think as a black queer person, um, there's there's so much more room. Now, you know, and it it's isn't it? Do you ever think like, would you like to love to find you know one of those early teachers and say? Well, hey, how do you like me now? You know, I'm an assistant <laughs> professor of English. But um, how did you find your way to that and to sort of think like, you know, I can be this person to where I'm making this difference, where I am raising these topics with my students and bringing it into the larger discourse? Mm -hmm. So how did I go from what I was experiencing as a mm -hmm. child to being someone who is now a teacher and yeah, and even yeah. like and even looking for your finding books as you are in high school and stuff, and not seeing yourself or having to look for that section to find yourself to where you know everybody can read and go, okay, well I found my book, but how do I make it better for the 
future generations? Yeah, so I think of that in a couple from di- a couple of different positions. So one of them is that, you know, part of how I got there um, is really through librarians, right? You know, so there was a time in my life where I just was not did not feel safe in school. You know, I was not learning anything um, through a combination of just you know people, um, you know, having sometimes teachers who just were not. Um, sort of picking up on the fact that, you know, um, me and other students in my class, um, which were predominantly black and Latino students, you know, didn't feel like we were being challenged, and so we were bored. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. So, um, and then on the other part of it, um, being like, you know, the queer kid not feeling safe, you know, and being physically, you know, um, assaulted in school and bullied and all those things. So it's part of what I talk about, I call in the book, being bored and battered. You know, that was my Mm -hmm. experience of education. And so being able to go to the library and have these librarians who really were actually breaking the law, right? But like they were but they knew that I couldn't go to school and they knew that I wanted to read more than anything and that I deserved to have an education. And so they let me have a place to be. So part of how I get from that time to where I am now, you know, at least as an educator, is really thinking of classrooms in relationship to safety. You know, I think of it as like, you know, how can I be somebody who either through the things I have my students read, you know, um, how the kind of, you know, affect I present in the classroom, you know, how can I create an educational environment where my students feel, you know, comfortable enough to be uncomfortable, right, with mm-hmm. all of the really challenging things that they have to talk about, you know, in classrooms if we're really getting a real education. Because I actually don't prescribe to the notion of, like, classrooms as safe spaces, right? I think re- education actually should unsettle you <laughs> in some respects, if it's good. You know, I think it mm-hmm. should challenge you. It should make you think. It should make you question. And it doesn't always feel – it doesn't make you feel like a, like a bad person or shame you or hurt you or, you know, any of those things, but it should make you kind of like feel like, oh, wow, like, you know, I didn't know something <laughs> and, you mm-hmm. know, um, and think about how to apply those things. So that's one way in which it kind of, um, you know, sort of speaks to, you know, where I am, uh, you know, how I got there is I think about what I didn't have and I try to provide that um, uh, in, you know, my, my teaching uh, today. Uh, the other part of it is being a um, – you know, someone who uh, grew up, I actually did grow up with teachers who looked like me, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the experience of, like, a vast majority of uh, people of color. Um, uh, so I actually, I, and a lot of my teachers, for the most part, when um, at a certain point in my life, uh, you know, um, we, my family moved from the part where the book starts when I was in kindergarten, where I was the only, like, mm-hmm. the only black kids in school, to a neighborhood where everybody was black and Latino. <laughs> and my mm-hmm. teachers all lived in my community. You know, I would see them at the grocery stores, and my family would see them at church, and my mother would be gossiping with them on the street, you know, about <laughs> neighborhood things. Uh, and so I try also, as a teacher, to pre- present to that kind of um, – environment, like as an educator, you know, I try to create like a community that reaches beyond the, the, fifth, the, the 75 minutes twice a week that I am, 
you know, together, you know, with my students. And I think it's really like a, a liberal arts education. You know, I think mm-hmm. that that's what it boils down for me. It is an education that, you know, focuses on, I try to focus on breath as well as death. Um, I try to talk about, you know, um, the issues that people actually need to be good um a good a good neighbor <laughs> um to be mm-hmm. a good community member to connect to other people and just use the the classroom as a space where that is you know to say like it's actually possible because if they if they can create that in the twice a week you know for 75 minutes each time that they're with me you know they're developing the schools that the skills that they need and and able to in order to do that in in everyday life and i think the world is better off for that humanity's better off for that Mm-hmm. You know, when you talk, sometimes like you talk about like queer cultures, and when you're talking, sometimes when you're talking about queer cultures, at one point I was reading, and you were saying like, you know, it's not, it's it's cultures that are outside of the norm, of the heteronormative culture. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and when people come into your class, are they surprised? I mean, are they expecting you to be doing like gay 101, and then that, that you're, talking a more expansive language about what LGBTQ culture is? Yes. Um, so my um, classes, I think, um, you know, I always, I mean, I have titles, right, that are like mm-hmm. Black Sexual Politics, Queer of Color Theory. Um, I'm teaching a class now for graduate students on queer pedagogy. And so I think that there's a fair amount of people who still um, do come to that, you know, expecting for us to talk only about lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, like, experiences, mm-hmm. which does make up a big part of what we talk about when we talk about queer. So a fair amount of my time when we do talk about, you know, queer um, is sort of having that discussion about, you know, what is the relationship between, you know, queer as a form of identity, as something that is kind of in some ways an umbrella term, right, for, you know, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people, um, uh, versus like queer as a, um, you know, as a kind of way of thinking about um, people who are tr- seen as like deviant, right, or dissident mm-hmm. in some way, um, who are against um, the norm, um, or too queer, right, like a verb, which is to mm-hmm. disrupt, you know, to to shake things up, uh, and so I think that um, that's is pretty new information for. Um, the vast majority of students that I have, especially at the undergraduate level. Uh, and, um, you know, some of the people who I turn to in order to articulate that to them, um, an essay that I love um, and you teach in every single class is um, by um, Kathy Cohen, um, who is mm-hmm. a political scientist at the University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. It's called Punks, Bulldaggers, and Welfare Queens, The Radical Potential of Queer Politics. And, you know, when they read that essay, and it, I mean, you know, which is so smart and so brilliant, um, you know, they, it, mm-hmm. it, it is something that helps them to understand, um, you know, that connotation of queer as something that, you know, is not kind of eliding and pushing aside and just saying like, oh, it's not LGBT. It's like, no, it's, it actually, I think, helps people to have a more crisp understanding of what lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people have been saying all along. And also, right, here's a way in which people can be more critically in community, you know, like with, um, you know, people who also experience, um, um, 
you know, the violences, the erasures, the marginalizations, but also the joys um, and, mm-hmm. and, and, and community, you know, that comes with being, you know, the weird ones, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also re- recently have found talk, sh- screening and talking with um, students through the film Moonlight, um, both my mm-hmm. graduate students and my undergraduate students has really helped students to understand queer in that sense as well. You know, so for example, like you know, we could focus on the main character, right? Like in Moonlight, um, uh, Sharon or Little, um, and see you know the kind of queer narrative about him. But we could also look at the family he forms with the people who take him up, right? As being a queer family, right? It's a heterosexual mm-hmm. couple, and they take this child that neither one of them is his actual parent, you know, and there's a kind of queerness to that family structure, right, because it doesn't sort of match the nuclear traditional blood relation kind of thing. And so those kinds of examples in popular culture really help, um, um, and as well as critical theory, help my students to kind of like pin that down. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny because when, you know, I, I know Dr. Cohen, when you were, when I was reading it and you said that, and you talk about, you know, you referred to her a couple of times. I'm like, yes, yes. And I know that I have often found, you know, having read that, having met her and talked to her about certain things, that often that it does when you get out there and you're prepared to speak about something and, and I'll be it. And I'll find that, first of all, that people have, okay, well, you're black, gay, you're going to talk about this. And then, no, not necessarily, you know, that that my world is bigger, it's, it is, it's very a queer world, mm-hmm. world, and to talk about that and then to expand that and to really help people get a better understanding, like you said, um, I hadn't thought about Moonlight, but that's a perfect example. Here was his, his family, you know, mm-hmm. what became his family, and this is, it's not your regular traditional family it's not like a wonderful foster care experience or whatever it's like look at it and this is real mm-hmm. and so i think that that's really important because there's really that often is what we're seeing in the world more than people even want to acknowledge and it's not coming through you're not going to see a you know a blackish type show about that kind of family mm-hmm. you know, so so I think that that is just like amazing, you know, to, to do that and to, to bring those in and to help people start to talk about and identify and then to identify that there are these different types of families, different types of communities. When you want to talk about be diversity and inclusion, you can be grasp concepts of diversity and, and inclusion when you recognize what you have been fed through every form of media and literacy Mm -hmm. as the normative. Yeah, and it makes me think, too, I always think about, um, you know, one of the great things about teaching is when you get the moment and you see, like, the sort of lights come on, right, like in the classroom, Mm -hmm. right? You see, Mm -hmm. like, how a student's thinking, you know, begins to sort of expand and how they apply it in ways that they find useful. Most teachers, we never really get to see that, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But one of the sort of hopes that I hold to speak to the point that you're talking about um, is, for example, you know, I think about the fact that when I am sort of talking about, you know, queer in the ways that I do in my classrooms um, and, and, you know, um, introduce students to intersectionality and, you know, queer of color critique and all of these things, 
you know, that we're in a moment in terms of popular culture that is like peak TV, right? We got Insecure, mm-hmm. we have Queen Sugar, we have How to Go to Way with Murder, all these shows mm-hmm. that have mm-hmm. like, you know, black characters who are multidimensional, you know, um, some of them even function as kind of anti-heroes in a way, right? And they're like mm-hmm. really, really complex. And I think that that's a beautiful and wonderful thing, you know, for, for television. Um, and though I still think, as I mentioned, you know, I feel like there could still be more in terms of black queer representation. So me talking with my students, right, um, that, you know, um, I have in my classes, you know, um, who knows? Like they could take these kinds of ideas and they are the next media makers, right? Like mm-hmm. they can be producing these, you know, images that, you know, I still – you know, kind of long for. They could stand on, you know, the platform that has been created by amazing people like Issa Rae, like, you know, Ava DuVernay, like, you know, um, you know Mara and Salim Akil, and I can go on and on and on, right? Mm-hmm. And just sort of, um, you know, from a television and media standpoint, you know, do that. I think literature obviously, you know, has um, a lot more um, to draw from. Uh, so, yeah, I think about that. Is that like the the people who are in my classes, you know, um, that, that there's a kind of reach that I may have that I can't even, you know, anticipate, uh, and you know that brings me a lot of uh, joy um, as a teacher, and also um, reminds me of the, you know, of the responsibility. It's I always think of teaching as an awesome responsibility um, mm-hmm. uh, and privilege. Mm-hmm. Well, Eric, we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And uh, when we come back, I want to talk about your award-winning book, Fashioning Lives. And um, so we will be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Back on Collections by Michelle Brown. I am talking with Eric Darnell Pritchard. He is an assistant professor of English at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. Um, I have been reading and his book, Fashioning Lives, Black Queers and the Politics of Literacy. And Eric, I mean, I had sent your email and I told you that part of it was triggering and part of it is like, it's inspiring. It's also makes you think. And um, I'll tell you, I mean, I have, I'm going to be reading it for a while because I know at certain, some points, you know, I said, okay, you've got to let that go, move on, you know, because I would get really, my thoughts would get into this book, you know, and some of the things that, that, um, that you talked about. 
like I said, things even from when you were introducing yourself and talking about your life. I mean, I had things that flashed forward about, you know, what made to do it. And then when you get into um, the very first section, you know, uh, after that part, and you're talking about, um, I just lost it, about the young man who, who gives a valentine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who gives a Lawrence valentine, King. and then he's killed. I mean, that was just like, all of that, you know, mm-hmm. like what is Valentine's about and, and who didn't have that crush and being afraid of, mm-hmm. how did you, I mean, first of all, that, I mean, I want to say that was just like, wow. But it talks about how you, how you in, in, talked with like 60 people. Mm-hmm. When you went to them, did you have in mind how you wanted this to lay out or did it just like, how did you pick those people and how did it it unfold to you. Yeah. So I'll start with first, like, how I found um, the people, and then I'll talk about mm-hmm. um, with the p- great point that you're raising, which is, like, you know, when you talk to, uh, you know, 60, you know, plus people in their, you know, you're hearing, like, some really wonderful, like, times in their lives, but you're also hearing a lot of really painful things as well mm-hmm. and how I dealt with that. So in terms of ch- selection of people, um, I, um, you know, would um, – I created a kind of recruitment tool um, almost like a flyer and also a letter. And I just reached out um, to places that, you know, I thought might um, get some responses, um, some of which would not be surprising, LGBT centers, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, different, like, um, clubs uh, um, in different in, in cities and neighborhoods, um, you know, online on message boards, um, activist organizations, and so on and so forth. And then some that you know, I chose deliberately, we're not traditional, right? Um, so I would, mm-hmm. like, hang things up in uh, churches for whom I didn't know what their reputation was and how they responded wow. to LGBT identity. Mm-hmm. But I wanted for somebody who may be in that space and want to talk to me and never be asked anywhere else in their social, political life or circle what it's like for them to be, you know, a black LGBTQ person to have the opportunity to tell me their story. And mm-hmm. I knew that those, that person may never get reached if I only go to, the, to like, the places that are deemed queer-friendly, right? Because the truth mm-hmm. is some of us never go to those spaces either, you know, um, and I wanted people to have a way to, 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 to speak, you know, their truth and sh- to share their stories. Um, and so second to that, I would go to organizations, um, which I have to be, I'm so grateful <laughs> still to these yeah. um, organizations like Zami um, in Atlanta, um, Fire and Inc., um, who mm-hmm. would send out information about the fact that I was at the time a graduate student doing, you know, um, a project that was going to look at black LGBTQ people's stories um, about language. And, um, you know, those responses um, were just like literally overnight. I remember in one instance, um, the flyer for uh, me interviewing went out through a listserv um, for uh, um, for um, an organization, and I got like. 30 responses, like overnight, I came back to an email inbox full of black queer people saying, yes, of course, I'll talk to you, you know, mm. and that just to me just proved what I already knew as a black gay man, which is that like, we are so, you know, um, we, 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 we have so much inside of us that we want to share and people don't, you know, we don't get our stories told, you know, we don't get to, you know, see them reflected, you know, in books and on TV enough. I think that that was really why so many people responded. That plus, you know, I just think 
you know, I found people to be so supportive, you know, like of, of this work um, and other, you know, um, um, people of color, LGBT people and queer people of color in particular to be so supportive of my work that, you know, the generosity with which people were willing, you know, and trust mm-hmm. were, trusting me, you know, to share their stories with me, uh, you know, really um, is just remarkable, and I'm so grateful for that. So that's really how I found people. Um, mm-hmm. How that played out in the interviews is, um, you know, I would come with a, a script of just kind of um, – just topics, really, not even direct questions, but just topics. And um, for those who um, either have the book already or um, I hope you will get the book, it's um, at the back of it. So you can actually see, you okay. know, like what that, what that script you know, looked like. Um, and it was just large topics. I want to talk to people about religion. I want to talk to people about digital technology. I want to talk to people about school. I want to talk to people about, um, you know, language and literacy. Um, I want to talk to people about, like, you know, just general identity. So, you know, and I would just go wherever the story went, you know, and people would just talk and I would ask follow-ups. And after a while, certain kinds of themes just began to emerge and I would hear them over and over and over again. And as a researcher, at least um, as I was trained um, in literacy studies um, um, by my um, um, advisor and mentor, um, Deborah Brandt, um, is that, you know, that's the thing that becomes the really exciting thing, right? Because there's a reason why these things keep coming up over and over and over again. So for an example of that would be religion. (laughs) I did Mm -hmm. not want to talk about religion and spirituality, (laughs) like period. Mm -hmm. I just was like, this is like, don't go there. (laughs) Like just Mm -hmm. like I didn't feel equipped. Um, I had my own personal sort of, you know, um, um, experiences, some positive and some negative, and I just was like, yeah, I don't want to do that. But it just kept coming up, kept coming up. And not always the same story, you know, and people's stories were contradictory one another. Um, and so I felt called as a researcher to, and accountable, right, to the story. It's that, like, if this is the story that people are telling me and religion and spirituality, you know, um, or the lack of it, right, uh, mm-hmm. is occupying such an important part in how people are experiencing being black, being queer, being a woman, be, and, and literacy and language, you can't silence that story. You have to tell, you have to tell the story, you know. And so... I didn't push, I didn't fight it anymore. <laughs> and so I became mm-hmm. a bigger part of more and more interviews. So by the time I got to 20, it's like, okay, all right, let, let's follow this religion spirituality thing and, and be really even more deliberate about the diversity of experiences of what that means for black queer people. So it wasn't just talking to people who were Christian, but people who were black queer and Buddhist, people who were mm-hmm. black queer and Jewish, people who were atheists, people who, you know, call themselves spiritual but not religious and, you know, all these kinds of ways of creating what I call in the book, using literacy to develop, you know, a black queer spirituality, a black queer theology um, in everyday life. Uh, And as you say, some of those things are, um, wow, um, really, the only, I mean, difficult to hear, hard to hear, um, 
like, I mean, I don't have to, you know, I'm sure people can only can imagine and maybe perhaps even know, right, the various forms of violence and experiences that people, you know, talk about, not just in relationship to religion and spirituality, but in their lives in general. Like, I'm literally sitting down and going with people from birth to, to interview, you know, talking about their mm-hmm. lives as black queer people. Um, but... I just think that, you know, it's um, – I have a responsibility, and we all have a responsibility, I think, to sort of um, hear people's stories and, and to hear them tell them their way um, and to be self-reflective, you know, about what that means for us uh, and to us. And as a, it, it, for me, I did a lot of self-work um, mm-hmm. because it does take a lot to um, sit in here, you know, um, for what amounted to, like, hundreds and, you know, of hours of, 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 of people's stories, some of them being, you know, joyful and wonderful and laughing and just fun, but some of them also, you know, painful and traumatizing. But, you know, that is the people did their part when they were willing to take the risk to sit and talk to a stranger right, about their lives, and I had the responsibility of um, doing my part and making sure that I was well and healthy and clear and a good listener. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, so, um, yeah, there definitely were moments when Mm -hmm. people would share things with me that were triggering to me, given my own, you know, personal experiences, Um, but I just always approached the work as, you know, in that moment I was there to be, they be present with someone else and to be a medium for, you know, what they were they were sharing with me um, that could be meaningful and create knowledge about literacy and language uh, for people who have not been attentive to black queer people and all that we create and all that we have to offer. Did you have anyone, you know, I talked to uh, uh, Dr. DeBrayer Watson and she had done some interviews and she had spoken to some elders and after she had, I mean, she said, like, it was hard stories to talk about what they had gone through and everything. And she had one or two people who, after they had gone through this, then suddenly called her and said, don't use that. You know, in fact, she has one where they said, you know, and she was trying to explain to them it was an important part of our history. It was an, And they said, well, you know, and I know I've lived out, my family knows, but wait until after I'm gone before mm. You put that out there. Did you experience anything like that? No, I didn't. I think part of it with my work is that, you know, methodologically, I do what is called um, kind of like, um, I mean, it's a form of ethnography. Um, and so there's, mm-hmm. a kind of, there's a certain amount of confidentiality that I promise and, you know, um, uh, I am <laughs> vigilant, you know, and mm-hmm. um, protecting of the people who I interviewed, and perhaps that makes people more comfortable because, you know, um, everyone, as I say in the book, is referred to in pseudonyms, and, you know, mm-hmm. I do, I take every caution um, to make sure that people um, are not, um, you know, um, identified, but um, I also, I think that that might play a role um, in it, um, uh, but I think um, the other part of it, uh, you know, uh, with my work is that I don't, um, yeah, I just, I, I've never had anybody do it, but what I do say um, in my, um, in the consent that people gave 
um, in order to be interviewed. And also, um, as a part of a kind of blurb that I gave at the beginning of my interviews, is I let people know if at any point I ask a question that you don't want to answer, don't answer it. If at any point this interview is, you know, triggering to you and you don't want to talk anymore, you want this to be over, it's over. And if you don't mm-hmm. want it used, I won't use it. You know, because Mm -hmm. um, that's just a part of, and and yes, it's true. I mean, that would be devastating to me as a researcher, right, because I know the value of these people, you know, of people's stories and that folks need to hear it and, you know, and all of those things. But I also think it's really important as a community, I mean, you know, community accountable intellectual, which is a phrase that Alexis Pauline Gums uses um, that um, uh, is one of my my chosen sisters. So, um, hi, Alexis, I'm sure you'll hear this at some point. Um, uh, like, you know, uses that as a community accountable intellectual, if someone came back to me and said, you know, I don't want this talked about, please don't use this or don't use my interview, you know, I think I have a responsibility to not use it. But I think the fact that they've asked is meaningful as well, right? And mm-hmm. so I think that people should know, not the specific name of the individual, but that, like, a person told their story. It's an important and valuable story for people to hear, and we still live in an environment and in a society where, you know, they had to come and say, you know, actually, please don't do that, right? That there's still mm-hmm. a certain kind of fear around that or shame or whatever it is the person is feeling. I don't want to project. And I think that as a, as a researcher, if it were me, I would actually, I think that would be important for people to know, you know, um, uh, because it speaks to, you know, the, the 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 conditions right um, and and that it's not easy that there's nothing easy about what mm-hmm. people do when they sit down to talk about their lives that that's that that's hard work I, I think that that would be a valuable you know um, um, form of knowledge and information for people to have and understand um, as readers. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that you're brave. I mean, when I saw the part, and I'll tell you, one of the areas that I did slow down was, was the section on spirituality. I mean, because, you know, that's a, that's, a, that's a subject, you know. It's, it's I, a lot. I, I know, you know. I mean, I was, once I was having a discussion with someone who's very committed to their faith, and I made this comment like, well, you know, the Bible was both a tool of oppression and liberation, and suddenly it got real quiet. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> But we were able then to go back and have a different type of discussion. Mm-hmm. So knowing your, you know, it's like, I don't want to go there, but it was like the universe was saying, no, you're going to come in here. <laughs> what, what did you have to check at the door when you sat down with someone who was um, in their faith? Mm-hmm. I had to, in all cases, regardless of people's sort of religious and spiritual experiences, um, check at the door my, not check at the door, but bring with me my own experiences, but um, be knowledge about my experiences and not allow it to sort of overwhelm other people's stories. To remember that I'm here to do interviews with other people and then, you know, provide a critical analysis. That is my analysis. And that's important to say, right? Like what the book mm-hmm. is about is my analysis of people's stories. It's not how mm-hmm. people pr- maybe see it themselves. Um, mm-hmm. So the one example I'll give um, is there's uh, um, in that chapter uh, someone who says, 
essentially that they went to a church and that a church said a bunch of homophobic things um, and um, they decided not to be in that church anymore, um, but they also didn't necessarily disagree with the homophobic things that were said because they themselves have decided in their life to take the Bible literally, right? Um, And for them that meant that if the pastor said on that day, this homophobic thing about being a you know gay person, they were actually not going to dispute that pastor. They would just say, well, there's these other things that the pastor himself is doing, or these other people are doing, right? That is mm-hmm. also you know um, up for critique. As a black gay person, I just was mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. Whew, you know what I mean, like, <laughs> right? Like you know. Yeah. Um, uh, and, you know, I, I just acknowledged that, um, you know, for me, what I wanted, right, as a person was to kind of say, like, no, 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 right? You know, like, mm-hmm. no, like, uh, here's how you should see it, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like, because this is what I, like, went through. Or this is what this person went through. And, you, you know, you're not, like, you know, I, I don't think that that's correct. I don't think these people should say that. I don't think this is what, you know, the Bible means. As somebody who was raised Baptist, you know, by a mother who was Catholic, right? Like, and, you know, mm-hmm. who, um, you know, so, like, but that's not what I'm here to do. And I actually don't think it's, it would have been valuable for people reading the book for me to kind of, mm-hmm. like, erase it. And, I mean, I'll be honest. I mean, there were people who read that part of the book um, and generous colleagues, um, you know, who read that part of the book. And for them, they were just like, I can't believe this person still feels <laughs> this way. Right, like mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. all that they said, that shows that they have this analysis. I can't believe that you know. And I understood where those colleagues were coming from when they read it, but I also understand the importance of this is that person's truth, and mm-hmm. the book is about what I call restorative literacies. And if a part of how this person formulates a literacy for himself that is restorative, right, that allows him to, you know. Um, I guess have his spiritual cake and eat it too, then that's, you know, that, that's important that I share that, you know, and that people know that, you know. Um, if for no other reason, at its very base, it takes actually quite a bit of analysis um, and um, thought um, mm-hmm. to, you know, have the kind of read that this individual in the book, this research participant actually has. And, I think that that's remarkable, and it demonstrates black queer folks know things, <laughs> and you don't have to, like, agree with it. But, you know, he has his reasons, and they're very actually thought out, and it's a reflection of his literate practice. And, and that, after all, is what the book is about. How do black queer people make meaning of literacy? And this is the meaning that he's making from something that, you know, um, is being used in a way that should hurt him, and he's telling us this is how it doesn't hurt me. You know, and I think that, that that's the the power of this book. It's like, yeah, you hear these things. Like I said, some parts of it you, you go like, it triggers you. You go like, oh, no, people can't. But then it's like you're stepping back and saying right or wrong. You might don't have to agree with them, but this is the way that we have made a way mm-hmm. out of, you know, of places where we've been erased, we've been marginalized, 
we've been told how we are going to do it. So, and that's real. I mean, we're still here today because we have found these, like you say, restorative literacy, where we've taken these and used it and found a way to not only survive, but then in many cases to thrive. Mm-hmm. And, and that that's not, and what I also find interesting about that is that's not separate from the history of literacy in African-American life, period, right? right? Mm-hmm. So literacy was, you know, as many people know, legislated away from black people, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have laws that said if you teach at that time an enslaved African person to read or write, you're gonna you're gonna get a fine, you know. There were, I mean, people. The the, the range of 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 punishments for enslaved black people and um, you know who were caught reading and writing or even attempting it ranged from like dismemberment to death, right? Mm-hmm. And so, at the same time, right? That's that same word, that same language, including the writing of those laws themselves is an example of literacy being used to do harm, right? Mm -hmm. You know, to um, enslaved African people. And so what I'm talking about, you know, in these examples is not an ideal, right? But as you say, right, like a just like, this is the truth of how people you know, took this really, really messy, you know, like, like you know, um, this is a really messy example, but it also just shows us, like, how people um, sort of, you know, did what they could, you know, with, with, with what they had. And that takes a fair amount of courage and ingenuity uh, and patience and grace <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other virtues, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so... You know, uh, you know that to me is always a really sort of remarkable line, you know, um, that we can look at in the history of African American literacy and and rhetoric, you know, from our ancestors, you know, through to today. Mm-hmm. You know, did I mean this is when I when I stopped and I and I was reading the book and I was like, you know. Wow, and and the way that you led things and to to look at things and to think about it, and I'm going like it all made perfect sense, you know. And it's like, well, yeah, I believe this. This is something I've thought about, but to take it and then say, you know, you're going to do this project and and come out with this book. What was the spark that said? I need to do this. This needs to be done. It hasn't been done. It hasn't been done in this way. What was that spike? What 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 was the bee in your bonnet, as my auntie would say? <laughs> yeah, the bee in my bonnet. Oh, God. okay. There are two things. So the spark in terms of like starting the kind of to do black queer work in literacy and language was that within the primary sort of field that I am as an English professor, which is rhetoric and composition, it had not been done. And, you know, I had that sense that um, if I did not do it, it may not happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I couldn't – I had other projects. You know, like, my, like what I was actually going to research was on writing – 
um, curriculums at historically black colleges and universities, because I went to a historically black college and university, Lincoln University mm-hmm. of Pennsylvania, the oldest historically black college and university <laughs> in existence. All right, yeah, all right. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yes, so I got to get that in uh, for my LU Lions. Um, and so that's what I was going to do. And I remember the day I went to my my um, advisor, and I've been reading outside of my field this very, like, exciting conversation about black queer life and culture, right? Like um, people like E. Patrick Johnson and Dwight McBride and Kathy Cohen and um, uh, Mae Henderson and, and E. Patrick Johnson did a whole anthology on black queer studies. And I was like, I want to have that conversation with literacy and rhetoric and composition scholars too, right? And so I go to my advisor and I say, like, I want to do this. And she's like, well, I think that's amazing. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, you, don't, you, don't, you won't have any company, right? <laughs> but, like, cause, <laughs> but, like, that shouldn't be the reason why you decide whether you're going to do this or not. So you can do this other thing on historically black colleges and universities, and you'll have great company. And she's right. I mean, it was, you know, I mean, it still mm-hmm. is, you know, something that there's so much work to be done in that area, and lots of people to talk to. She's like, or you can do this for whatever reasons feel important to you. And that felt incredibly risky to me, but you know, I just felt the call of my ancestors. To be honest, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Like I just felt mm-hmm. like if like I just I had to do it. You know, I had, like, I, like, if I didn't do anything else, I wanted to be able to say that a book about black queer people and their literacy, language, and rhetorical practices, like, had gotten done. And now, I'm not the only one. So, like, she's right. When I started, I didn't have any company. Now I have lots of company. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, there's mm-hmm. lots of wonderful graduate students and, you know, professors who are other, you know, at other institutions who are also assistant professors in ed- English education and in rhetoric and composition who are doing this, like, work as well. And so that was really the spark, was just kind of like the bee in my bonnet is the, it was the bee in my <laughs> bonnet. That, that it's, it's always the same thing. It's always, for me, the mm-hmm. ancestors. It's always the ancestral call. That, like, that's always the thing, you know, the kind of, um, like, you know, hum of, like, you know, like, remember us? You know, remember us, remember us, like that kind of thing. Um, uh, so there's that. The other part of it is, I think, also an ancestral call. In the process of writing the book, my mom um, got ill, and I was her caretaker, my, myself and my husband, um, David. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, she passed away um, in 2013 on the inauguration, the second inauguration for Obama that day. Mm-hmm. And I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. You know, I just was like, how do you keep going? She had for so long been, you know, my inspiration, you know. Like, my mom always, you know, raised me to believe in myself. You know, if you got that one last quarter, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, like, let's say, you know, life is a gambling table. You got one chip left, you put it on you, you know, because, mm-hmm. um, like, you know, you can always bet on yourself. And, you know, like, within a year after she died, I just was still in such a state of just – you know, just sadness and grief um, and depression, I just didn't think I had it in me, like, to finish it. But I remembered that I had told her that if I were to publish a book ever, that I was going <laughs> to dedicate that book to her. Oh. And that was the thing that really was the mm-hmm. spark to get back to the book, um, which, um, you know, that I made myself 
a promise, and I, you know, um, and I made my mother a promise, and I had a responsibility, you know, uh, to it. So, um, yeah, I guess it's always the ancestors. <laughs> mhm, mhm. Now, you know, um, in the conclusion, part, you talked briefly about the whole Black Lives Matter, and I guess I want to, I want your opinion. Okay, you see what has happened with Black Lives Matter, okay, and how it has morphed and transformed and expanded. And now you also have this Me Too, which, you know, which, you know, Alyssa Milano grabbed it and ran with it, but it wasn't hers to be that at first. Mm-hmm. What do you think about these things, these mm-hmm. hashtag Black Lives Matter, Me Too, and our narrative? Mm-hmm. I think anything that calls attention to injustice um, and to the work that we have to do as human beings to step into the greatest and most expansive version of ourselves, which is one that does not violate, degrade, maim, erase, kill people, is always a good thing. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think whether that comes through social media hashtags, newspapers, um, radio programs, (laughs) you know, however it is that people are getting the truth and getting the information and feeling like there can be a platform um, or a community of people who will protect them um, so that they can say their say, that, that 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 we have that I mean that that we have to protect that we have to uphold that we have to create environments um, and spaces for that. I do think, though, um, at least in terms of like, um, since the focus of this program is intersectionality, you know, mm-hmm. um, especially, you know, that, um, you know, it's important as people have pointed out, as Oprah pointed out in her speech at the Golden Globes, right, that Black women in particular have always for a very long time, mm-hmm. been saying me too, right, mm-hmm. have been calling our attention to the matter of social, of sexual harassment and violence and rape culture. Um, and, uh, you know, from the work of uh, uh, Rosa Parks, right, who, you know, was investigating these kinds of occurrences, um, uh, you know, decades ago, to Reese Taylor, um, uh, who, um, you know, uh, Oprah spoke about, to Tarana Burke, uh, mm-hmm. to Aisha Simmons, um, and her uh, uh, documentary, uh, No. Uh, and, um, you know, so I think that, you know, uh, once again, um, I mean, to the, the Kambahi River Collective, right, mm-hmm. um, and black feminist organizations. So, I mean, this work has been been happening, uh, um, and uh, I think that there has been um, one of the things I've, I've really appreciated are those people who are remembering the history, you know, of you know, the organizations and activists for decades now, especially of black women, um, black women and girls who had, you know, always been, you know, um, speaking truth to power on this account, mm-hmm. um, interracially as well as mm-hmm. intraracially. 
um, whether or not people listened, whether or not it was awarded, whether or not it got Time Magazine covers, uh, Persons of the Year, or any of those things, right? Uh, and uh, I, so I think it's both great that there's a kind of visibility um, um, that's making this kind of like accessible to people who had not been attentive, but the information was always there, right? Mm-hmm. And the work was always getting done. And it's just as important for us to always keep reminding people of that part too, you know, that, 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 that there's a history here, uh, that that is also a part of our, doing our due diligence um, and responsibility to address these issues is remembering the history of people who were always knocking on our door and trying to tell us the truth, you know, um, and, and not forgetting that. So um, that is my general sort of thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, and I saw that because you were, you know, last weekend they did the whole women's march, and it was interesting that you saw from different places. I know that at one university it was very inclusive of many people. They talked about many issues, but then in another place that it was like there was no issue, no mention of women of color. Mm-hmm. or issues affecting communities of color, mm-hmm. but yet, you know, there is pictures of, you know, people with, you know, actually, uh, Black Lives Matter signs, and there was, mm-hmm. you know, very, no one black on the, on the platform, and then this whole Me Too, and like, it all happened, like, this is all brand new, where mm-hmm. at the other university where someone was talking about uh, women of color, indigenous people who have been subject to rape culture, and all how often, like in this new dialogue, like things happened before Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And so I thought that that was, and then there, and there you were, you know, and the same thing that when you talk about Black Lives Matter, that there have been some people when you talk to them about it, they forgot about, you know, what led to it, who started it. Mm-hmm. And they were thinking, and in fact, I talked to one woman who was like relating it to, um, like, well, Black Lives Matter because Black people come out and vote. No, a little deeper than that, sister. You know, a little deeper than that, my sister. So, I mean, so I mean, it's just something like you said to make sure that that part of the narrative, like you said, is not erased or skipped. You know, if you're mm-hmm. going to go, let's 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 talk about the whole thing. Yeah, and I mean, I think that that like you know, um, and that's important, right? That like you know, people know Alicia Garza, Opal Tometi, Patrice mm-hmm. Cullors, right? Who created mm-hmm. you know Black Lives Matter? Um, uh, that you know these. Um, I think one of the most powerful things. I mean, they've done so much, but one of the mm-hmm. things that I say to my students that I think is a powerful thing that they did is when you know they wrote their own history. Right, mm-hmm. um, because it was happening at a time where we're in real time, and people are trying to erase right the fact that this was always an intersectional movement, right? You know, that was unapologetically black, um, and uh, uh, and you know, so and that's happening in real time. We don't have to wait twenty or thirty years for people to try mm. to like forget the fact that here are three, you know, black women, um, and you know, and I believe you know, two of them queer. Um, black mm-hmm. people, like, who did this, right? And um, uh, so, you know, that, that, that to me is such an important um, intervention um, to constantly be calling people's attention back to 
like, well, wait a minute. Like, yeah, like, I see what you're trying to do. Y'all are trying to hold, to the example you just gave, this rally. But here's where mm-hmm. this is, like, still, this is, this, is, this is getting away from, you know, the kinds of coalition building, the kinds of community, you know, the kinds of intersectional justice that is possible here. That, that's one part of the work. The other part of the work <laughs> is for people to mm-hmm. be able to hear folks and don't take that personal. Mm-hmm. Right? Like when somebody says, like, you know, there's an erasure happening here, you know, don't take it personal. It's not about you. It's an opportunity to do better. It's about, it's about us, right? Mm-hmm. You know, Maya Angelou says, do the best you can until you can do better, and then when you know better, you do better, you know? Mm-hmm. So when somebody says, like, ooh, it's really great that y'all have this kind of magazine cover here, but why are there no women of color featured here? Oh, it's really wonderful that you're having this rally and everybody has on their Black Lives Matter T-shirts, but, you know, here's this, like, anti-trans thing that ha- is happening right here, and trans people are also <laughs> are black folks too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, when you hear that kind of stuff, <laughs> right, you can't, like, you know, the other part of the work is, like, for those people for whom you hear that and you just, like, feel embarrassed by just not being attentive to it, not being, like, mm-hmm. you know, awake to it. You know, I always say to my students um, and also to myself, when those moments happen, you just got to tell shame to go sit down someplace mm. and just really just lean into it, you know. Don't run away. Don't hide. Don't shrink. Here is your moment. This is your opportunity. This is grace. This is the universe giving you the opportunity to stretch, mm-hmm. you know, And so if a person sort of calls out some stuff, you know, like, it's not about you. You know, it's it's about all of us um, and about, you know, our ability to be humane. And Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, that's what I see a lot. I don't see see there being any shortage of folks willing to actually call attention (laughs) to how we're not necessarily – being accountable to each other. I think a lot of people are speaking the truth. I think uh, the, like that I see far too many people in social media, um, in newspapers, and in, in conversations who are not doing the other part of that work, which is to like not just listen, but also to act on what it is that you've heard, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, I th- that's, you know that's, that's the work. Well, you know, and I think that the other part, too, is like where, where I was in, in Ann Arbor, there was uh, a woman of Asian descent who got up and talked about, you know, the fetishism of Asian women and things that had happened. And she was like, and prior to that, like she was having a moment and she was like, you know, I don't know how they're going to receive it. And I said, that's not your problem. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I mean, speak your truth. This is what's happening. So how they receive it is not that I said, you know, you go up there and you, you know, speak your truth. And she did. And and so that other part is like that part where we have to encourage those or support those. And like you said, remind them, you know, about the shame, you know, let it sit down. And the other part is like it's not your responsibility to make them feel comfortable. Mm-mm. It's your responsibility to speak your truth. Yep. Yeah. And that, that, mm-hmm. is your, that is your contribution to the conversation that we are having. 
uh, in this moment, and it actually costs a lot. You know, it takes a lot for people to st- to stand, you know, alone, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, say things that, you know, they, they already know that other people may not like or things like that, but that doesn't mean it, it doesn't, it's not the truth, you know. And, you know, that, that's the, um, I feel like, Maya Angelou is speaking to me today. I got another mind. Like, like it's, I mean, the courage, right? Like she says that courage is the most important of all the virtues, right? Mm-hmm. Because without courage, you can't practice any other virtue consistently. You can only practice those virtues, like, erratically, but not consistently. So you can't love and you can't practice love. You can't practice patience. You can't practice, you know, like, honesty, you know, any virtue, consistently if you don't have courage. It takes courage to do all of those things. Uh, And, I mean, I think that that's really what, you know, like we are seeing a lot of is, like, people are developing that courage muscle to tell their truths and to know that they may be out there by themselves. What I want to see more of is people developing the courage muscle to hear what that person has to say to act on what that person has had to say, to say, oh, my gosh, you know, I had heard rumors about this thing and I didn't say anything, right, or I didn't go and speak up about it or what have you, right? Like that's the part that, that I think is still, is still missing is the other, the other end of it, you know, the courage to admit, you know, um, complicity through silence, mm. right, about things that matter and are important. Um, and, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take our second break. We will be right back with Eric Darnell Pritchard here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back. We're talking with Eric Darnell Pritchard. He is an assistant professor of English at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. We've been talking about his book, Fashioning Lives, Black Queers, and the Politics of Literacy. You know, Eric, traditionally people, if you said literacy, people would say it's the ability to read and write. How would you define literacy? <laughs> oh gosh, I feel like I'm about to think about like exams again from when I was in graduate school. <laughs> oh wow. Um so I say that literacy is a socio cultural practice of meaning making. Mm. Uh and you know, so from that, reading and writing is 
a way in which meaning gets made and disseminated, transferred on, um, but it's not the only way. You know, meaning is created through dance um, Mm -hmm. and and shared in that way. Meaning is created through music and photography and, you know, my my current work in fashion. Um, So um, what I'm – so for me, I think the meanings of literacy get passed on to us through our attentiveness to the specific context in which that literacy is occurring in the history, historical context in which it is occurring. Uh, you know, that is a big sort of school of thought with amongst my colleagues in um, literacy studies. Some people refer to it as kind of like the new literacy studies as the, the definition, um, uh, you know, that is given to it and it sort of emerged um, in the early 80s. Um, that, you know, it kind of pushes back on this notion Right. This like that. There's only one kind of literacy that's mm-hmm. you know sort of trans historical, um, you know, trans communal. It's like the same place, same way, everywhere. Uh, and so, um, because of that, you know, observation, you know, we have books like mine, right? That mm-hmm. sort of are saying, let's be specific when we say literacy. We're talking about Black queer people. Here's literacy among 60 black queer people that Eric Pritchard talked to in the uh, early 21st century, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. Um, And that that specificity is important to the long story of um, of the question you're asking, how do you define literacy, you know, that we'll still be answering that long after I'm no longer here. Right, um, because literacy is that dynamic, and times change, people change, social needs change, literacy and and how it's used at work, you know, changes, and all those things inform what literacy is. The two people who have informed my definition of literacy are sort of way before the '80s. So the first person um, is Sojourner Truth. Mm. Um, Sojourner Truth um, is um, um, for those listening who don't know. Um, uh, she, um, you know, um, was born um, into uh, slavery as Isabella Bonfrey. She took the name Sojourner Truth. Um, she was historically recorded as being um, illiterate. Uh, meaning she could not read and write. Her first language, I believe, was Dutch. It wasn't even English um, um, because that is, um, uh, uh, you know, the, the language. Um, that, that is what she sort of learned um, through the people who um, had enslaved, um, you know, her and her people in, this, in that part of our country. Um, but she gave passionate wonderful, brilliant social and cultural analysis and political analysis and critique on the issue of abolition and on suffrage. So much so that her speeches, especially her, her you know, famous anti-woman speech, right, gets taught mm-hmm. in high schools and colleges everywhere now, right? And this is someone who we're, to, we're taught, and we, as we understand literacy in a formal sense, to be illiterate. So let's deal with that contradiction. How can it be mm-hmm. that someone who is illiterate, right, can also be someone who has made one of the most important contributions to our world in and through language, right? Well, isn't it, isn't it sort of like, to me, the traditional meaning, it's sort of like what I said about the Bible, the traditional meaning of literacy being the ability to read and write was a tool to oppress. Mm-hmm. However, our 
grasping, are using it, are what you're talking about Sojourner Truth did, this more inclusive form of, of literacy, which includes the arts, dance, you know, her ability to analyze and speak it, that mm-hmm. is our form of liberation. Mm-hmm. And it also calls into, uh, to calls out, not calls out, but shows, right, um, things about black people um, that folks did not, and sometimes still do not, readily concede, which is that black people know things. <laughs> mm-hmm. And black mm-hmm. people, and we create knowledge. We don't just take it, take it in, we create it. Um, and, um, you know, we have excellence and brilliance and ingenuity in our communicative practices, whatever those practices are. And so she was still able to get her message across. So there's a famous qu- a quote, um, which I mentioned in the book, where Sojourner Truth is recorded to have said, and I have to say that because we don't, you know, necessarily, you mm-hmm. know, she was talked about in newspapers. She was never really talked to, but, you know, um, mm-hmm. uh, in newspapers. But she's recorded to have said, I don't read small things like books. I read men and nations. Uh-huh. Right? And right. so, you know, uh, Essentially, what she's saying is like reading books is one thing, but being able to actually read, right, um, you know, the world in a way that is still transformative is another, and that that's mm-hmm. valuable, you know. And I'm doing it, and she did. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, she really um, has been someone who has always. I have an ancestral altar in my home, and there's a big collage of Sojourner Truth um, that. Alexis Pauline Gums uh, created um, that just sits there um, because she really has always informed the way I think of literacy and and justice. And then the other I mentioned earlier is Paula Freire, the educational activist who described Mm -hmm. literacy as reading the word and the world, that you really can't have literacy unless you're able to sort of have that relationship between the two. Uh, And people want to take one you know, which is that, that sort of traditional sense that you're talking about and place it over the other. And what he's saying is that that's not, it's not even that it's not possible. It's not usable, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, being the nerd that I am, when I started reading your book, I had a highlighter. And those, where you have those two things, in fact, there's one right after the other. Those two I had immediate. that was the first thing in this book that I highlighted, the Sojourner mm-hmm. Truth. And then from Paulo Freire. I mean, it was yeah. just like, yes, you know. And then the, rest is, the rest is, you know. And then I was off to the races. So we're coming into the home stretch. I know that it's, uh, I was reading that it says that you have some things coming out in the Phenambulist. Um, and what else is going on with you into 2018? Wow. Okay. So. Um, right now, I'm working on um, two new book projects. Um, so the one is actually the sort of follow-up um, to Fashioning Lives, um, and uh, the title of it is um, a quote from Audre Lorde. It's, the title of the book is Crucibles of Difference, mm. um, Queer of Color, Rhetorical Activism, and Literacy Education. And so I'm looking at... Um, queer of color organizations um, in the 70s and 80s who, and specifically, specific members of those organizations who were activist rhetorical educators. So mm. I'm looking at Audre Lorde, I'm looking at 
um, Melvin Dixon, June Jordan, um, Gloria Anzaldúa, and um, the organizations that they were affiliated with, uh, and essentially, you know, how they created vocabularies for literacy education um, that still are giving teachers the things that they need to look at, to, 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 to enact literacy as the practice of freedom today, right? You mm -hmm. know, I'm, I'm going to pull queer people of color back into those histories and show, because so many of them, they were on the streets. They were activists, and, um, and, and we know their poetry and their, their literary work, but they were also teachers too. And so I'm looking at teachers um, and mm -hmm. the, the teaching sort of narrative of their lives. Um, so that's one thing. And then I'm all writing a biography. I've been working on this for a while, so I'm near, I'm near the completion of it, um, a biography about the fashion designer Patrick Kelly, um, who mm -hmm. was born and raised in Vicksburg, Mississippi, and became um, made history as the first uh, American and first person of color admitted to the Chambre Syndicale um, in mm. uh, Paris and um, in the late 80s uh, and, you know, dressed everyone, Cicely Tyson and yeah. Diana Ross and the Jacksons and uh, Princess Di uh, and passed away in January of 1990 um, uh, from, uh, at the time, they said bone marrow disease, but what we now know is um, from complications, um, health complications due to AIDS. Um, mm -hmm. And so that is the, the, the writing work um, that I'm doing. Um, and speaking-wise, um, I'll be speaking um, at different um, institutions. One I'm really looking forward to is in April at the University of Massachusetts in Amherst, um, where I'll be talking about crucibles of difference. And... Um, I'm always available to talk to colleges and community organizations um, uh, about the book, um, about um, uh, other aspects of my work. Um, but, yeah, mostly it's um, I'm kind of like in a period where I'm back to researching and writing on new projects mm -hmm. exclusively. For so long, it was just all about fashioning lives. And, you know, that's it's having its own life now. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, um, I'm kind of letting it be out there, having its life. Um, and, you know, very happy to talk to people about that while also, you know, focusing on um, – other um, projects and work. I should also say, highlight really quickly, you mentioned this, but the special issue of the journal QED, um, a journal of GLBTQ politics. I did a special issue on sartorial politics, um, intersectionality, and queer world making. So looking at the intersections of fashion, intersectionality, and queer life and culture. And that was just published uh, two weeks oh. ago. So that's, oh, okay. that's out right now. People can get it, a copy of it. It's on Michigan State University Press. Um, it has a wonderful collection of articles by so many brilliant um, writers across a variety of disciplines, and I think people would really enjoy it. Okay, I'm definitely going to be sure and put a link to that. Well, Eric, I want to thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking to you. I'll be talking to you again because, you know, you've got to come back with other books. <laughs> of course, I would love to. I would absolutely uh -huh. love to. And thank you so much, Michelle, for this opportunity and for, you know, all you are doing to just have these really critical conversations. Um, it's so important that we never stop talking um, with one another and learning from one another. And, um, you know, you really 
um, are doing a very important work. Um, and I, I, I think you know that, but if no one said it, you know, I, wanna, I want you to know that. So thank you so much for all you do. Well, thank you. And you know that, you know that turquoise piece you wear? Yes. I'll send you my address. Just send it on. <laughs> we have to go jewelry shopping together sometime. I'm sure there's wonderful places to shop in and around uh, the Detroit area, too. So yeah. we should do that well, together sometime. We definitely will, Eric. Thank you again. Thank you so very much. All right. Take and care. You... Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. We've come to the end of this week's episode of Collections by Michelle Brown. Our guest today was Dr. Eric Darnell Pritchard, Assistant Professor of English at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. His book is Fashioning Lives, Black Queers and the Politics of Literacy. You can listen to archived episodes of Collections by Michelle Brown on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change. That's right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.